The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. All right. It's that time again. Episode, what number, Scott? Seven. <laughs> seven. Episode seven. Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Um, Jay Goodwin from the Rare Barrel. Um, full, full-ish house tonight in the studio. Fullest we've ever had. Yeah, for sure. Got a great show tonight um, here with Scott and Bevo, of course. And our guest tonight in studio is Nick Pelletieri. Did I pronounce that correctly? No, you did. Good job. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to make sure. Founder and chief yeast wrangler. I want that title. At the Yeast Bay. That uh, sounds like a self-appointed title. Well, if you're a founder, it's I think you can make up whatever you want, right? Yeah. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got Mike, a home brewer, who brought his uh, his sour beers here. And we're going to do a little, uh, little tasting in a second. Uh, so welcome, Mike. It's actually John. John? Yeah. Thanks, bud. Did I say Mike? Yeah. I was talking about the mic. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like Let be up just, on the uh, mic. Cross that out. <laughs> Thanks, John. Bebo. A little early confusion. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one time somebody's name was wrong and it wasn't my fault. All right, hold on. So Three, one time. two, one. Welcome, John, yeah. to the show. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. We can't wait to try your beers in a minute. Um, you know, let's just start over. <laughs> right? It's meant for the seat. No, sorry. <laughs> I do like that intro. I wouldn't mind here in the end. So. Honestly, funkified content. Push, push did a great job on this. not for the faint of heart. So exercise JV, uh, damn discretion. Would you John? please? Okay. Gotcha. Was that just for my headphones? Or can people uh, hear yeah, us right now? Yeah, I'm not over here. Here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. It's that time. It's the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Full house tonight. Good to be back. Yeah, great to be back. Got Nick Impelitari from the East Bay. Did you pronounce that's, that right? That right? Oh, I did. Good to be here. <laughs> having deja vu. What do you mean? Oh, have we done this before? I it love is, radio. It is strange. And why I say it's full house, it's because uh, we're new at tasting here in our first segment with John, an expert home brewer who brought three of his sour beers for us to try. Welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me, guys. What if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't <laughs> one today, in the words of Bill Murray. Groundhog Day. Yeah, it's been a crazy last uh, month in between this show and the last show. We had Winter Brews and SF Beer Week in between then and now. So it's made it feel like a lot longer since we've been here, doesn't it? It feels like ages I'm because so much went on. I'm at least three years older, at least. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been absolutely crazy. We had a lot of good events at the Rare Barrel. Uh, Winter Brews went off... Uh, I think without a hitch. I don't know. I was pretty drunk at that festival. There are a lot of great beers. I was not. It went off without a hitch. You're welcome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All thanks to Bevo, 100%. But yeah, it was great. Great fest. And then uh, uh, one thing I really liked about the fest is a lot of listeners came up and said they're really digging the Sour Hour, which is like just awesome feedback to hear. And it's great to hear people say, you know, our discussions on the show, whether it's with you know a professional brewer, an author, someone who started their own yeast lab, or an expert sour beer home brewer, 
you know, it's all it's all feeding the collective consciousness about sour beer. So it's it's great to be, you know, just another part of it. What's going on and, uh, you know, everyone learning more about sour beer. So we appreciate the feedback. Speaking of feedback, you know, we, we'd really appreciate it if you guys would uh, listen to the show, contribute to the chat, give us a call, 888-401-BEER. During the week, you can send Scott an email, scott at thebrewingnetwork.com. Vivo's doing the uh, hand across the throat thing, like no calls. So massive amounts of phone calls. Please. Don't let Bevo check out on this show. Yeah, even if you don't want to be on the air, just blow the phone lines up. I don't know. She's yelling something, but with her mic off. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, subscribe on, you know, your iTunes, your Stitchers, your Pod Waves. I don't know what, what all the, fit, the kids are using these days, but and then leave us some feedback. It's much appreciated, and we want to know what you guys think, and we want to know where you want the direction of the show to go. You know, I, I got a whole list of stuff I want to talk about, but the fact of the matter is we got three beers in front of us, so I think we just transition right into that. John, can you tell us a little bit about... These beers, you know, your background in home brewing, you know, how, how did how did you come to us today with these beers? Well, you know, um, once I started getting into home brewing, I found sour beers, and uh, man, the first one, it just really there's no turning back from there, you know. So I started reading some podcasts around actual actually uh, Mike Tonsmeyer. Mm-hmm. He's kind of the guy that inspired me to do some of the things the way that I'm doing them. And then you know, there's other breweries like yourself and uh, Chad Jacobson at Crooked Stave. So some of the some of the uh, techniques I use, I got pretty much directly from you guys. Awesome. That's great. And uh, Chad and uh, Mike are great resources, and it's cool. You know, you said, uh, you know, you got some of your techniques for these beers from those sources. So what is, what is your tech technique on these beers? Just kind of your homebrew sour method, generally speaking. Sure. Um, I've had the best success from uh, harvesting bottle dregs. Okay. Whether it be um, growing them up to use as the primary fermenter, or adding them in secondary, or along with you know a healthy pitch of sack, and that's where I find I get the best results. Yeah, that's always a good thing. You know, you're getting instead of those yeast and bacteria right out of the smack pack or the vial. You know, you're you're getting stuff that brewers themselves have grown up over time and and advance those yeast and bacteria. So I think why make sour beer harder than it has to be if you've got these great cultures available to you you know just go for it so we've got three of your beers here in front of us uh, i believe we have a nectarine sour beer a blackberry beer and then we were talking before what you call a blonde beer that actually does have peach in it but maybe but, you don't get yeah <laughs> quite they as don't much really come through so much gotcha so on these three beers you know walk us through are these all the same process that you're just kind of talking about with the bottle dregs or how do these fermentations come about? No, actually, these are all quite different. Um, they taste different, don't they? they they're all, they're all their I've only gotten thing. through two. Yeah, they yeah. are all uh, quite different. So the oldest one, which was actually one of the first sour beers that I made, is the Blackberry Sour. This one, I used uh, Belgian Saison, the 565, for the primary fermentation, and then I added uh, brewery bottle dregs into it. Oh, okay. So that one was um, my first, one of my first, uh, you know, go at it. I was using the brewery dregs quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And the second one would be the peach, which you can't actually taste the peach. That was uh, Bretois, okay. uh, French Saison, and uh, a repitch of Jolly Pumpkin dregs. Okay. And I've always found that those Jolly Pumpkin dregs really sour beer fast. They're very aggressive and they'll fight through uh, about 25 IBUs, I found, which this beer. Wow. Is what I bittered it to. Really? Okay. So yep. this uh, this peach beer you did, or the blonde beer, you you put twenty five IBU in it, and I then did. 
you knew it was going to be a sour beer from from that start. So you were looking for oh, yeah. something that was going to go over that IBU threshold. Yes. Interesting. Yep. This nectarine sour actually grew up the dregs from a bottle of uh, St. Breda wit beer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't expect it to be sour when I was growing them up. But when I was tasting the starter beer, there was a noticeable acidity. So I figured, you know, a strain of lacto from his brewery must have been in there. So I just went with that, tailored the beer around that, and came out with that guy. Was the commercial beer? Did you did you try the commercial yes. beer before you? Uh... It, yeah, it was not sour. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there must maybe there's just a few cells of lacto in there, and through stepping it up, must have propped it up enough. I guess sure, there's a lot of ways this can get. I mean, each of these three beers, you can kind of get a feel for your sense as a brewer, you know, tasting it across the different ones. But Scott, what do you think of these? I think the uh, the blonde one. You know, now you guys are saying you don't taste the peach. That's the, the nectarine. nectarine. Oh, the nectarine. Yeah. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, so the ne- the nectarine flavor is really mm-hmm. it's like a candy oh, yeah. nectarine. This is commercial quality sour beer in my opinion. Uh, it's outstanding. Uh, the the ruby red the the green bottle cap that was the blueberry right the blackberry the blackberry yes uh, it tastes like a beer that Jay maybe you would brew to blend with something that wasn't as sour as you wanted it it tastes overly acidic to me mm-hmm. and um, the third one is kind of a mix of the two it's a step down from the nectarine one in my opinion mm-hmm. um, it has a little bit of this sort of does it diacetyl the butter. Very slight, mm-hmm. yeah. but just but the, again, the nitpicking is what I'm doing on the show, especially when I have this nectarine one in front of me, which is superb. It doesn't even have a little bit of anything. It has nothing for me to nitpick. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. the The acidity really makes the nectarine just stand out, just yep. pop. Phenomenal. But it's I mean Good it's job, a yeah, Thank really you. rangy set of beers and a, a, an interesting flight. I mean, and they all look great. And I mean, anyone who is capable of achieving this uh, nectarine beer, I want to hear more from. Yeah, it's awesome. And so Thanks, when it comes to like the different ages of beers and it walks through a little bit about, you know, how how you treat dregs when you get like you get them out of a bottle. Yes. How are you growing them up? And then, you know, you add them to the beer at what point? And then what are the what are the age ranges of these beers that you have here? OK, when I uh, step up bottle dregs, typically I will add them. So w- one bottle's worth will go into about four to five hundred milliliters of 1020 wort. So after I leave that for probably about five days, maybe I see some activity. Most of the time I do. Mm-hmm. And then I'll generally step it up to about 1,500 milliliters. And from there, that's generally uh, I find big enough for uh, a primary pitch when it's strictly Britannomyces. Now, when I'm growing up dregs that have you know a, a whole mixed culture, you know, PDO, Lacto, Brett, I'll typically do the same thing, but I'll keep it at about 500, and then that's what I'll pitch into the beer. Gotcha. And then the range of ages across these different ones, like, did you find, how often did you taste them when you were aging them? You know, did you, you know, find, hey, this one really needed more time or, you know, I got something a little bit off in this one and I added three months of the aging or what's your, what's your process when you're thinking, hey, this beer is pretty old now. I should check in and see if it's ready to package. I usually will wait about two months before I start checking it. If I know it's just maybe Britannomyces and maybe some lactobacillus, then I know I can start checking it sooner because mm-hmm. I can get some pretty good sour beers pretty quick with, with that combination. But, for example, like this blackberry sour, this one I really didn't have high hopes for going into it because, you know, I was checking it along the way every few months maybe, and at about six months, eight months, nine months, I don't know. It was really, uh, I don't know how to put it. It had a strong, like, 
wet, musty character that was okay. very off-putting to me. Interesting. And then uh, I remember checking it one day, and it was gone. It tasted clean. Interesting. And I thought it was ready to package. But interestingly enough, mm-hmm. I kind of feel like I'm getting some acetone out of this beer now. That's the blackberry one? Yes. Interesting. Okay. I feel like I am, but I haven't encountered that in the beer before. That's. I mean, it sounds like you know, you're know you definitely pretty on top of it. You're checking, you're checking the beers not just for age, but also for you know your flavors and all that stuff. I think a lot of brewers... Um, you know, I've said it before, but taking that kind of set it and forget it approach to sour beers, you know, mm-hmm. you think you hear, oh, it's going to take a year or it's going to take this long. So you don't really taste it along the way. And I think in that way, you're kind of losing valuable data that you could be, you know, observing your beer along the way and learning more about it. You can taste it after a long period of time and miss all the things that happen along the way. Like it's kind of like getting to the start line of a roller coaster. And then instead of taking the ride, you just kind of walk to the end. You know, you you kind of miss yeah. all this whole thing going on. But it sounds like, you know, you're you're taking the time to you know check in on the beers along the way Absolutely. and really you know get to know them and and all their finickiness. I, I think with homebrewers though, it's uh, it's a little bit more of a challenge to check really consistently because you you kind of worry about, especially if you're in a bucket, you worry about oxygen ingress and how that can potentially cause some off flavors. Where you know if you got a barrel. Like you guys have a rare barrel, mm-hmm. um, you just pull the nail, drain a little bit out, a little bit easier to take a sample. I think a lot of homebrewers really worry about that seeping in of oxygen. For sure. Oh, and, absolutely. Yeah, so how do, you, how do you check it, John? I'm pretty anal with a lot of stuff I do. You know, I kind of grew listening to Jamil, so you know mm-hmm. how that guy is. So when I check, I use a, a wine thief, you know, a plastic one that I use for my uh, mixed culture fermentation. So I just I'll pop the bung, stick it in a little glass with some star sand, pull my sample, and then... Before I finally close it, I'll shoot some CO2 in there just oh, to put, help put a little blanket no, on top. I think that's a, that's a good plan. I wonder if you know, anybody's really ever done an experiment where they've, they've taken a side-by-side, maybe two and a half gallons, and you know, one they leave alone and the other they kind of dip into every you know, week or two. See that would that, be interesting. See if you get some that would be pretty interesting. hugely different flavors from the oxygen. Definitely. And you know, at the Rare Barrel, we don't, you know, we don't have our carboys or uh, wine thieves or anything, but uh, we do have barrels that get pretty far in the aging process before we sample. So we sample pretty often. It's like every 10 days or so for each batch of beer. But that's not every barrel from each batch of beer. Sometimes there's 16 barrels from a batch. Sometimes there's 30 or more. So we get pretty far along where there's a barrel that doesn't even have a nail in it. So we'd be, you know, drilling a hole today for a beer that was brewed eight months ago. And it's like, you know, we haven't checked in on this specific barrel. And I'm always interested to see how that barrel tastes compared to one that's had a nail in it and it's, had, and it's been sampled the whole time. I think there's definitely less of an effect because it's such a small volume coming out versus the total volume of the beer, especially since we're measuring gravity with a density meter, which all you need is a couple milliliters of beer to get your gravity reading. And I can understand for a home brewer, you know, you don't want to be taking gravities of your, you know, could even be a one-gallon carboy, um, all the time to see if your sour yep. beer is done fermenting. Um, so, you know, just just a few tricks to kind of not waste that beer, I'd say, is, you know, do a visual check, do an aromatic check, and do a taste check. So, you know, are you seeing signs of fermentation in the beer? Are there bubbles rising to the top if you swirl a sample that you took? When you smell it, is it very aromatic, or are you having, tr- having trouble smelling the beer? At the Rare Barrel, 
when fermentation is complete, we actually have trouble smelling the beer because it's a still sample. So we really have to whip it around to get the aromatics out of it. If you're smelling your beer in a vibrant way, then that could be a problem. And then just the last thing, you know, just do a taste. Are you, is it feeling, does it have a mouthfeel of, you know, okay, I get a few bubbles, I, I get that tingle of carbonation. If it is, then that's another way to check it without having to waste a whole hydrometer jar uh, testing your beer. I want to make an amendment to what I said about the diacetyl because now I'm sipping it more, and I think I'm wrong about that. I think what it has is kind of like what Roberto's beer had mm-hmm. when he was in studio in October, which is that it's like it's good, but it doesn't have the bright quality that like this nectarine beer does or commercial rare barrel beer. There's just something muddy about it even though it doesn't really have any off flavor that I can mm-hmm. put my finger on. Do you guys agree with that? And if so, wh- where does where does the brightness come from? You're talking about the blackberry beer? Uh, I'm or, talking about the peach beer, oh, the peach up, beer. up against the nectarine. Because I, the, I, the, the blackberry beer to me is, is, is too acidic. I would blend it with something less sour, and I actually think it would be pretty good. It doesn't taste off to me. It just tastes too sour. I agree, and I, I don't think you get a lot of blackberries, so you wouldn't have to worry about imparting any of the fruit flavor. Absolutely. It's, it's, you'd essentially use that as a high-acid beer to add a little bit more pop to another one. Totally. So. I don't find anything too wrong with the blonde slash peach beer. That's what I'm saying. I don't think there's something wrong with that. That's why I want to amend what I said. It's lacking the bright, like up against the nectarine beer. How would you compare the two? The the other two are more aggressive, more aggressively flavored. Um, the nectarine certainly has a strong fruit component, I would say. And the blackberry, yeah, that has a lot going on where I do get some more muddled flavors. But, there, you know, there's nothing wrong with the peach slash blonde beer and it's sort of something we touched on the last show. Just because it doesn't bowl you over with flavor like the other two doesn't mean it's any less of a beer. It's It's got balance. You know, There's virtue in that balance. And, and it's kind of hard to compare the, the peach and the nectarine side by side because the nectarine has, has such an intense fruit flavor. And it's so aromatic, whereas the peach is more subdued. Yeah. So it's different flavors, but both very good. Awesome. So do we have time for a question before a break, or how are we doing? Yeah, all this time restraints are self-imposed here on the BN, so let's do a question. Well, no, it's, we'll still, a it's still a radio show. You taught me oh, that. right. Hey, you know what? You're right. We have a hard out at uh, 530, out. so let's just get to uh, one quick question okay. from Clayton, uh, who loves the shows, and he likes the songs at the breaks, too. Thanks. First, Jay says he likes football and beer. I'm a Chargers <laughs> fan, so I'm sour like half the season. Uh, who on the other shows like what other teams? So let's just a little we'll break up the beer talk. Well, if you're a Chargers fan, season. you're you're not sour for half the season. You're sour for the second half of the season. So. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your other teams? One thing I should just mention is that all football questions, mm. all sour beer mm. questions tonight are brought to you by our terrific sponsor, sourbeerblog.com. You should definitely go check out all their articles on sour beer making uh and if you haven't listened to it the last show dr lambic came on we tried some of his homebrew beers and that was a, a lot of fun but i don't know do you guys are you guys football fans i am what's your teams baltimore i got ravens w- and what else wisconsin born and raised so i'm a packer fan Nick so i don't need to hear about the, the charges guy being sour all right <laughs> <laughs> and uh clayton i don't have a football team i'm from los angeles and uh and i'm 40, never into the raiders and oh you the- will the yeah, Niners, yeah, I do yeah. like the Niners. If I'm going to root for a team, it's the Niners. I'm a hockey guy. Like that's that's. I'm, I'm saying that's my team. But you, oh, you're you, a Niners. I, I wasn't inviting you oh. to our fandom, but oh. you know, well, maybe. can I join? Well, you'll have an LA team soon enough. Do you like the Rams? Mm, I like the Niners more. Please. Uh, we'll see. Okay. We'll see. Okay. Was the rest of it? 
Uh, <laughs> he doesn't like uh, he doesn't like the terminology surrounding sour beer. He says uh, he says I don't like that every beer that's fermented with something other than sack is called sour. I'm pushing to divide the segment into at least two types: sour and funky. I don't think that Orval or saison rue needs to be called sour beer. What do you think? Am I the only one irritated about this? Uh, you're absolutely not the only one irritated by that, and that's why at the Rare Barrel we specifically put that in our tagline: a sour beer company. You know. There's so much ambiguity when it comes to Brett beers, bacteria beers, not any, you know, anything that just doesn't have Saccharomyces in it. And so, you know, we're making a promise when you have a rear barrel beer, it means there's going to be bacteria in it, number one. And this kind of satisfies our threshold, our self-imposed threshold as this is sour enough to be called a sour beer. There's no ambiguity. We may, you know, one day we might be making tart saisons or some something that kind of straddles that line but it's still you know it's going to be sour so you know i i got frustrated kind of going to the store looking at the shelf and seeing you know wild this and you know funky that and not really knowing what i was going to get and it kind of just made me think you know i don't think the brewer knows what they're going to be getting so that's my thoughts on just using sour it's just that means to me acidic funky and wild i love those descriptors i just think we should be more clear about what those are. Is that an umbrella term that includes sour beers or is it just for Britannomyces beers or is it just for beers that actually smell funky? Because some Brett beers don't smell funky at all. I mean, no, yeah, quite to the contrary. Some Brett beers are actually quite fruity, which is at the East Bay, that's the kind of Brett character that I actually really like. I really appreciate the strong fruit forward with a little bit of funk in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, John's in here. He's got a, a terrific outfit. He's got a rare barrel hat. <laughs> and uh, a Milk the Funk t-shirt, which is a group that we're all a part of. Shout out yep. to the Milk the Funk guys. Great yep. great guys out there. Hopefully they're listening. And um, Milk the Funk, I think for them, is you know they're trying to do the same thing we're trying to do on this show, which is promote beers made with Britannomyces, Lactobacillus, and Pediococcus. So, that's right. I, and I think as long as you care what beers are being called, that's a good first step. You know, we'll kind of work it out as a beer community over time. But, yeah, I don't know. What do you, you know, what what would you call these beers you're serving us, John? These sour beers, these American wild ales, what, what are they to you? I, I would say they're American sour beers for me. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, each one is so unique that uh, I wouldn't just want to blanket them with that label as well. It is sort of an all-encompassing category. That's that's kind of what we use. You know, mm-hmm. we use American sour beer to describe the rear barrel beer, but it's just because it's the lack of a better term, you know. And when, you know, we're entering our beers in a competition or something, there's only one category, really. It's just American sours. And there's, you know, a fruit subcategory and a regular subcategory, but you know, I think there's a long way to go on this issue, and yeah, we're not going to settle it overnight. I generally don't even like the word sour. I mean, it's hard to step aside from our, our world here, which is so mm-hmm. sour-focused, and remember that 95% or more of the population associates sour beer with beer that's gone bad. People are, like, reviled by that term as a general rule. So what I, what I do to sidestep that mm-hmm. is, A, take them to the rear barrel, or B, use the word <laughs> tart. It's just so much more effective at conveying what they're about to experience. I was going to say, I think just education in general can can change that. Like, I see people come to the rear barrel and have their first sour beer, and they're like, holy shit, this is amazing. Like, this yeah. is sour beer? It's not just beer that went, you know, sour that wasn't supposed to. Totally. What we're not trying to do is introduce sour beer to the masses. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to make the best sour beer possible. And I think it's inherently more accessible. And people are smart. They can figure out that 
sour doesn't always mean bad. You know, I, I always correct people when they say, you know, oh, you know, I've really soured on that guy. It's like, no, 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 you, you've sweetened on that guy. You know, sour is not a bad word. So people love sour things. They're just not usually called sour. And the fact of the matter is that people in the brewing industry call these beers sour. So I say, let's embrace that. This is our thing, our niche. Let's own it. Let's say these are sour beers. And sure, that is shocking to some people, but so is the taste of the beer. That's all part of the same experience. Hey, this is a sour beer. Hey, try it. You, you see someone, oh, you know, have the sour beer face. And that's all part of the fun. But, you know, you get past it. You get the second sip. You get the third sip. You get the second beer. And, you know, if you get that far, then you're hooked for life. And I think everyone who loves the style of beer has that rite of passage. And they've convinced people they've gone through that rite of passage. And that's part of the fun. Absolutely. And, and with sour beers, your palate evolves over time. Even Mike Tonsmere said the first time he had a sour beer, he had to choke it down for a couple hours. He said it, was, <laughs> it wasn't easy to drink just because it's so different than what you've had before. I couldn't even finish my first one, to be honest. Do you remember what it was? I do remember. It was uh, the Newport Beach Brewing Company's. Mm. And uh, I got a sampler of it, and I couldn't drink it. Next time I had one was at uh, Cascade in Portland, and I fell in love. There you go. <laughs> it's a great place that, to have one of your first sour beers. It is. Yeah. That, that's an easy mind changer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That first experience, did somebody explain to you what was about to happen? No, they didn't. You know, I, That's the problem. Yeah. You know, I like barrel-aged beers, and it said barrel-aged sour. So, oh, give me that one. Okay. And it's me. I was like, wow, that is actually sour. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, I, you know, I think sour is something to be proud of, but... You know, maybe this show would have, you know, a lot more, you know, wider appeal if we change the name. So the tart we'll, timeout. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll think about uh, a new name over the break. Yeah. Sounds good. Let's this is it. the meh hour on the Brewing Network. Since the first time the Brewing Network microphones turned on, more beer was behind it. More Beer sponsors the programming on the BN because, like you, they love brewing. And like the Brewing Network, they love sharing their knowledge. Morebeer.com isn't just a website to place your next equipment or ingredient order. Morebeer.com also gives you access to free beer information that will make you a better brewer. Go to morebeer.com and click into the Learning Center. You'll find podcasts, technical facts, video tutorials, and more, including access to The Buzz, More Beer's social network of more than 5,000 members. And some of them might even be crazier about beer than you are. Get over to morebeer.com today and take advantage of the buzz, the forum, the learning center, and make sure you're signed up to receive the newest More Beer catalog. More Beer, bringing you absolutely everything for beer making. If you don't know Yeast Man, you're missing out. White Labs Yeast Manager, Yeast Man, is available free to any brewer. Yeast Man is your direct link to White Labs Yeast Production Facility. Yes, you can check yeast availability, and yes, you can place an order. But Yeastman is much more. View yeast quality control and analytical reports. See your big QC day entries and reports. Get access to the entire White Labs catalog, specials on overruns of freshly made yeast, and customized options for your account. Yeastman is the only real-time online ordering in the business connected directly to factory production. Yeastman is always on and always live. It's the largest online marketplace for specialty brewer's yeast and related products. Visit Yeastman.com today and tap directly into White Lab's production facility. Gonna brew? Yeastman to the rescue.
let's just let's let that run a little bit longer. Yeah. It's so good. Isn't it? I love it. <laughs> We're back from some kind of first segment back on the sour hour. Uh, got John in studio who shared his uh, home brew with us, which is great. Which was absolutely delicious. Thanks, uh, guys. Awesome. That uh, even deeper, more baritone voice that you just heard was uh, Nick, the oh. founder of the East Bay. I think he's, I'm getting a little nervous, Scott, because uh, he, he's much smarter than I am. And I think that radio voice is better. Yeah, no kidding. Between, oh. you, you know, Jeremy Cowan from Schmaltz is in here. He's got a golden tongue. Nick, you, I don't know if I'm, forget you. I don't know if I'm going to have a gig for much longer. Because well, not only do I not have the, the baritone, I don't know anything. Am I looking at my new job? Well, you, you know how to turn off the microphone. <laughs> I so. do. I know That's... how to press buttons. <laughs> I can slide the knobs and press the buttons. That is the ultimate power. But yeah, Nick's, Nick's nice enough to join us in the studio tonight. He got out of uh, his day job early, but uh, let's get into that. You know, so, you, so you're the founder of the East Bay. How did that come about? What, what's your background? How did you come to be with us today? Yeah, so uh, I have a formal background in microbiology, just training from undergrad and... The East Bay actually came about because I, I kind of gravitated away from micro in grad school. And when I moved out here, I just kind of realized, like, man, I, I really I really miss culturing things. And so I kind of used my homebrewing as a platform to start culturing things again. And I was posting about it on places like uh, Reddit. Mm-hmm. And there was a really good response. And people started contacting me and saying, hey, I'd like to use that strain, too. And I started getting a lot of these emails. And, and finally, I said, well, I should... I should probably try to find a way to make this happen. Uh, so early 2013 uh, is really when I started culturing stuff and started putting together a business plan, um, started forming my business, uh, figured out the contract uh, with White Labs. Mm-hmm. And at that point, 2014, February 2014, we started selling stuff, and it's been working out really well. It's, awesome. Yeah. Had a couple additional product launches in August with two sour blends and uh, Brett blend, and then two lager strains uh, recently. Which you probably don't want to bring up here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. I mean, real nice, can, clean strains. I think there's more. The the biggest brand of sour beer in the United States is a lager first, and that's uh, La Folie from New Belgium. Yep. So I'm interested in any fermentation. The only thing that I don't really know about anymore is hops. I don't, you know, I couldn't tell you the first thing about what's going on in hops. Yeah, get Nathan in here. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you know, you're the guy. You're the go-to guy on yeast. So you know, when it comes to the yeast bay, what you know, there's, I, I think I see a trend with smaller uh, yeast labs that are supplying home brewers and craft brewers. See that popping up a little bit more often. What makes the yeast bay different? What, do, what are you guys really trying to do? Well, I think we have a few things going for us. One is that uh, the blends we create are totally unique to us. Most of our organisms that we provide and, and no one else has. And I think the fact that we have a contract manufacturer in White Labs means a lot it's it's huge i think that gave us instant credibility and people knew that we were going to be able to meet demand and if we don't it's usually my fault i, I screwed <laughs> something up i've done it a couple times already um but then the quality control too being able to put our strains through their quality system is just it, it's huge and i think people immediately know when they buy that culture they're they're buying that culture and they know what they get awesome and you you know you say you offer you know rare and unique yeast strains and bacteria strains you know what what, what are you offering that you feel like you know the other labs out there are not i think a lot of our brett blends are really where we we create a lot of value for brewers it's Mm -hmm. we've pulled a lot of really great strains out of lambics and other spontaneously fermented beers and and we blend them in in 
uh, ratios that I think provide really unique flavor and aroma profiles that I haven't personally experienced in, in any of the other Brett blends that I've used. And are you trying to, you know, work from the Bretts you work with forward, or are you trying to create a flavor and then work backwards, like with all the different cultures that, you know, you find out Definitely. About? Well, I just, I have what I have to work with. So I've probably mm-hmm. sifted through, you know, a hundred or so colonies, just things that I've isolated, Brett strains. And, you know, I pulled out about 10 that I thought were worthwhile. So wow. those are really what I had to, to work with. But most of those I picked because they're more fruit forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, they kind of have more subdued funk. And that's that's kind of the flavor you, profile that we were going for. Are actually. you not milking the funk or are you milking the funk? I'll milk the funk. <laughs> oh, he's <laughs> milking it for sure. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I think I think that's great. So, you know, about 10% of the strains you test are ones that, you know, you find desirable or show favorable uh, attenuation attributes. Right. So... Really, it, it, it's it's a whole process that we go through to try to evaluate these strains, mm-hmm. and uh, basically, yeah, take us through. Yeah, so I guess in the beginning, we'll we'll look at a beer and we'll say this is a good target. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm going to take the dregs from that. I'm going to I'm essentially going to pour that into a sterile tube, streak it out on a plate, and uh, what I do is I do something called a four phase streak. And uh, how that works is you want to streak out 25 percent of the plate, and then you essentially turn it 90 degrees. You mm-hmm. streak out another 25 percent. And you keep doing that until the plate is completely streaked out. And the idea is you want to keep diluting that streak so you get single colony formation. Because uh, each one of those colonies rises from a single cell. It's, it's essentially a, a, a pure culture on solid media. And th- those plates are essentially what I refer to as, as the mother plates mm-hmm. from the original source. And then from there, I'll actually select colonies and basically typically based on morphology. So, you know, different strains actually grow quite differently. They have a uh, different margin. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are different colors. Uh, so you can actually tell this one's probably different from this one. So I'll try to select some diversity, um, and I'll restreak those onto their own plates. So that, those are kind of the master plates for each of those cultures. From there, I'll do a small propagation and a small test fermentation. And mm-hmm. if it if it's not very good, you know, bad aromas and flavors, uh, really poor attenuation, I'll typically get rid of it. Okay, so it, you are taking an attenuation that early on. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll prop up about 50 mils, and then mm-hmm. I'll do like a 500 mil, maybe one liter batch, uh, and try to evaluate it there. 500 milliliters, that doesn't leave a lot to test. How are you testing for the attenuation, and then at, w- at what point are you doing that? Right, so typically for Brett, I'll do that after maybe about 21 days, something okay. like that, and typically I'll, I'll ferment around 70, 72 degrees. You know, typically you'll get a good idea of what the attenuation is going to be like with that strain. Do you, you have a Do you have a plate to show the camera? Actually, yeah. So this is one, and you guys can. Here, just, why don't I hold it up? Yeah, and you guys can actually open it and just check it out. You can kind of. Uh, There's squishy, talk, there's squishy talk cells about what on it. There, well, is that wow. focused or? Uh, yeah, are we on the right camera, Beef? Right. So that plate um, is somewhat of a mixed culture. You can actually, if you look at it closely, you can see there are two types of colonies on it. There's one that's kind of more glossy, so you can take a look at it real close. There's one that's more glossy, and one that's kind of more of a matte finish. There's some some fuzzies. You look a little fuzzy. Let, let me just say this. Maybe, maybe that's are, my vision after a couple of beers. <laughs> while you guys are examining the plate, you can go to brewingnetwork.com slash TV, and uh, you can see the live uh, cameras in the studio that we are showing this plate to right now, and you can enjoy the, the riveting sight of bearded men jawjacking into microphones. Yeah. <laughs> this, wait, so this is not a video podcast? It, so, well, it's a video radio show is vi- what you mean. Video radio podcast. That's Pod, right. Pod waves. I guess. Okay. Catching up on my industry terms. The tart timetable. Tame, what did I say? The tart timeout. The tar- here on the brewing hour <laughs> is on video. But, you know, typically we'll go, we'll go from those small-scale fermentations. If I feel like it's worth moving forward, I'll actually prop up about four liters worth of yeast for my beta testers. 
and I got three guys, uh, Ed Coffey, Marshall, the Lastfer, and mm-hmm. uh, Brian Hall. So I'll send them the yeast. We'll put together a beer that we want to make. We'll decide on, you know, fermentation parameters, mash parameters, things like that. Try to vary it so we can get a good idea of what the strain's like. I'll ship them the yeast. They'll make some beer. They'll send it back, and then we'll do a Google Hangout and just kind of talk about, is this good? Is it bad? Is there a place for it in the yeast bay? Can we make a product with it? Would it be part of a blend so they're, you know, kind of a process we go through? See, I think that's so awesome, and I really see this as one of the big parts of the the future of brewing. I mean, what Nick's doing at the yeast bay is going to influence hundreds of different fermentations that are going out there, and it's him capturing yeast on his own and then sending out to some buddies who are brewing a batch of beer and then... You know, a bunch of home brewers, a bunch of commercial brewers, they're all going to use that yeast. So, you know, a few people can really have a large effect on the craft brewing industry, especially when craft brewers are so thirsty for new flavors, new beers that other brewers can't make. You know, Nick's that's something really that Nick is providing here where he's just giving you different proprietary blends and looking for new yeast and bacteria. It's awesome. So just speaking of that, how many strains do you have in your portfolio or just, uh, you know, different offerings do you have? And right then- now we've got, in terms of Brett, we have about nine or ten Brett that are oh. banked with White Labs that were like, these are these are really good. We're going to make them part of a blend, you know, either part of one of the four Brett, Brett blends that we have or part of our Melange blend. Awesome. And then what what about the rest of your portfolio? Do you have, you know, you have some, some ale yeast, some lager yeast? Right. We have two new lager yeasts and then um, a handful of Saccharomyces service, yeah. And what, what are some of your, like, give me, like, the three best-selling yeasts or blends that you have? What are, what are people really reacting to? Uh, unfortunately, none of them are actually the sour ones, which I, it kind of surprised okay. me. That's, that's cool. There's some, of, there's some <laughs> of my favorite ones, too. I mean, the melange blend, some of the stuff I've made with it. I kind of have some R&D batches from when I was developing the blend, and it was mm-hmm. it's definitely one of my favorite blends. Um, but definitely people go for the Vermont Ale, um, which is really peachy. And then we have something called uh, Funktown Pale Ale, actually, which has our Vermont with a really fruity strain of Brett. So I tried to I tried to throw some funk into that beer, and it actually it's worked out really well. And people love it. They say it's like a just a tropical explosion when they open it up. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah. Sounds really good. John, have you gotten to try any of those strains? Yeah, I've used the uh, Brett Brussels blend. How'd that work out? And what kind of beer did you brew with that? So I did a saison with that beer, and uh, I added that beer. You know, just when High Croizen was falling, or that uh, Brett strain when High Croizen was dropping, mm-hmm. and uh, man, that blend dried that beer out. To like point nine nine six. That that is, I think, the <laughs> highest attenuating blend that we have. It's, yeah, it's that, yeah, that's, that's good. one I would definitely describe as being a very funky blend. Yep, definitely. Okay. And what was your what was your primary fermentation on that? Uh, my primary was with uh, a saison yeast. I believe it was from Giga Yeast. Gotcha. Yeah. And then was it kind of smelling pretty, pretty fruity, estery when you added it, or is it a strain that you think you know put a lot into the beer and then the Brett interacted with it? I I think. Whatever the uh, whatever esters and maybe phenols that that saison strain had made, that Brett blend went in there and just tore it apart. That's what it does. It's the beauty of Brett. You know, it, it, yeah. it, it destroys and it creates, it, and that, that's why it has such a profound impact on the on the final beer. It's that Brett that blend dominates the beer more than anything. Awesome, absolutely. So you're really happy with the results. Yeah, it's a really nice beer. Very that cool. is definitely one I milk the funk with. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> is strong, <laughs> strong milking. Hey Nick, do you generally prefer drier beer? Mm. I guess it depends on the style, you know, nothing like a dry, crisp beer on, you know, super hot day, but, you know, I enjoy some big beefy scotch ales that are probably, or, you know, English ales that just have huge final gravities. I enjoy those too. There's a time and a place for every beer, I think. 
I think that's right on. And, and you know, it, it even applies to sour beer. Sometimes you get a little bit of extra sweetness in a sour beer, maybe in like a almost like a Flemish red style or an Oud Bruin style, and it almost increases your perception of the acidity, like a little bit of sweetness. You get that sweet and sour playing off each other. You know, we have uh, some some dry hop golden sour beers we do at the Rare Barrel, and the hop flavor and aroma that plays with the acidity of the beer, those build off of each other. So whether you're getting like almost new acid character from the beer and then almost new hop flavor and aroma from the interaction of the sourness of the beer and the dry hops, there's all sorts of cool stuff going on, an interplay of, you know, the traditional beer ingredients. Sure, there's a lot of new hop varieties going on and new malts coming out all the time. But what I'm really excited about with uh, the East Bay and projects like yours, Nick, are just that, you know, you're really pioneering basically new ingredients that are the most impactful in beer making. It's Absolutely. Like, and that's, you know, our our whole goal, our mission is to impact brewers by allowing them to create new flavor and aroma profiles on the fermentation end of things. So on the cool side, how are they going to alter that beer? And it's very true that, you know, brewers make wort. The yeast is what actually makes the beer, and that's what really determines the final character of that beer. Awesome. And so you, you might have mentioned before you have a, a couple of different, I'd say, you know, your main sour strains. you got the melange and then the farmhouse sour. Can you sort of compare and contrast? Like what are the main differences those people who are listening – or just desperate to milk that funk out there and <laughs> well, de- definitely make one a sour of beer. one of the biggest differences uh you're not going to be milking any funk with the the farmhouse sour ale it's uh it's got a mild farmhouse character but it has no bread in it and okay. we kind of did that on purpose so what we did was we essentially combined uh the primary yeast strain in our saison blend added a little bit of Wallonian farmhouse and then added two strains of lactic acid bacteria. So we really wanted to highlight all the fruity, the citrus esters from the saison yeast, add a little bit of kind of dank farmhouse aroma, and then throw some acidity in there with the lacto. Yeah. Oh, so there there are strains of lactobacillus in there. Are you, do you get any, or is there any worry or procedure for extended aging, you know, not pairing a lactic acid bacteria like lactobacillus? You know, not pairing it with Brett, so where it would clean up any, you know, diastole or anything produced along the way. Right. So the, the two strains that we've used, I really haven't gotten any big off flavors from those. But what I like is that it, it leaves enough, the two strains of, of yeast that we use, I think leave enough for the lacto to, to chew on. Because, you know, lactic acid is actually a metabolic byproduct mm-hmm. uh, of the lactic acid consuming a carbon source. So uh, the more that's there for them to chew on, the better. Absolutely. So if that one is sort of like the less funky, if you want a little bit more Brett Funk, you'd recommend the other? Right. And it's not, you know, the melange blend is, uh, we use two strain, two Belgian yeast strains that have um, a fairly mild ester profile. Okay. Uh, Sec Fermentati, two Lacto, a Pedio, and then five Brett. And definitely the hardest thing to nail down were the Brett strains. You know, we were going for something more fruit forward with a little bit of funk in the background, and it took a while to dial that in. We started with like seven or eight strains. And it was good. It just wasn't great. And it wasn't what we were going for. And, you know, we just started subbing out things and, and putting new mm-hmm. strains in. And, and finally, we dialed into these five, and I think it worked out really well. Awesome. Survival of the fittest. And the, the, our amalgamation Brett blend is actually uh, somewhat of, a, of an embodiment of what we use in the melange blend, of the Brett blend that we use. Uh, it's essentially like a component of it. We, we kind of came up with that as we were developing the melange blend. I didn't want to use that exact mix for the melange, but I thought this is a really good standalone just 100 percent bread awesome i think we should uh take a couple of questions before we go to break but before we do that i actually just wanted to ask nick about 
what's your what's your distribution? You know, there's people across the country listening to this. Are they going to be able to get you know the strains and mixes you're talking about all over the world, worldwide? Yeah. Mm. So we actually do um, all our U.S. vial sales are just direct through our website through uh, theyeastbay.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just in the U.S. But internationally, we do vial sales in uh, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, U.K., and Europe. Uh, so we're we're really all over the place with with vials um, and even commercial pitches too. You know, we've sold a number to um, some breweries in Spain and Puerto Rico and Canada. But we've done a, uh, quite a few commercial sales in the U.S. too. And you guys just did a batch locally at a Cleafleet. I can't say Cleafis Coily, yeah. Cleafis. Really, really great brewery. Uh, a new local brewery in San Leandro, mm-hmm. which is apparently becoming Brew Central. Uh, Absolutely. With 21A coming in. But yeah, uh, I think it's going to be a great beer. It's being released on the 28th. Awesome. So if I'm in you know, Washington, D.C., I'm just going to yeastbay.com. I'm ordering straight from you. It's getting shipped out to me. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. So then are you in a couple of like homebrew shops too? Or? So actually we're working on that. So I think de- demand has gotten high enough where I'm having trouble keeping up with it and I'm having trouble mm-hmm. keeping my stock up. So basically what, what we're trying to move towards is I'll maintain my online store because a lot of people have told me don't get rid of it. We really like the way that, you know, the person who isolates the yeast and care, you know, we have a, a scientist that actually cares for it and yeah. packages it correctly and they're really happy about that. But we're definitely looking to, to move towards wholesale. Uh, we do wholesale to one customer right now, to Northern Brewer, because they use one of our yeast. They use a Vermont Ale mm-hmm. uh, in uh, one of their kits. And that's the same uh, strain you used in your collaboration, right? Correct. Awesome. We have a couple of questions out there, Scott? Yeah, we do. We have a couple from the chat room. We'll get to those in the next segment. I want to ask a couple of yeast questions while we got Nick here. Uh, Great. This is continuing from uh, Clayton's email from earlier. He said, there's been very little discussion about PDO, except for a few mentions throughout the shows. Can you please discuss the good and the bad of this microorganism and why you choose not to use it, Jay, uh, and mostly why someone would use it? Vinny from Russian River, for example, is a fan. Yeah, so I feel like a parrot a little bit sometimes when I'm talking about, you know, we don't have a house culture at the rear barrel. We're always trying to experiment with new things. So I would never say never when it comes to really any technique on sour beer. Do we use a lot of Brett and Lacto primary fermentation? Absolutely. Uh, do we not use PDO? No, we use quite a bit of PDO. In fact, our next 30-barrel batch is going to be mostly a huge PDO starter because we're actually running out. We've used it so much uh, lately. You know, the good and the bad aspect of it, you know, it it can sour beer too quickly if you're using it like we are. So our, our batch next week, we're putting it in from day one, primary fermentation with PDO. We're not going to oxygenate the batch that's to discourage the Britannomyces that are with it and encourage the PDO to produce lots of lactic acid and then less of acetic acid. So we're trying to build our stock of more sour beer to blend into maybe some of the beers that we have that, that, are, that may be less sour. You know, what concerns you have when you do that? Don't overdo it. Don't, you know, reuse that PDO over and over and over again. Don't have a plan to not blend it. You know, we're, we're expecting a very sour beer to come from that. So, um, you know, we're, we're well set up for that. But I think for most people, the best way to use PDO is in your very first sour beer. Because what you're probably going to do is you're going to make a Saccharomyces primary fermentation with all your clean equipment. And then you're going to buy some new glass carboy. You're going to rack off the primary yeast, go into the secondary and your new glass carboy that's going to be just for your sour beer. You're going to want to do a starter just with either some mix of yeast and bacteria with PDO or maybe just PDO on its own to really get that going. Or else you're just putting fresh bugs and 
uh, wild yeast in, in an environment where it's not going to thrive, basically. So PDO in that way is more hardy than a lactobacillus. There's a reason we do primary with Brett and lacto and not a secondary with Brett and lacto. We've done both. The secondary with lactobacillus, much more subtle. Um, you're not going to get a beer that's, you know, in, in the rare barrel's opinion, sour enough to be called sour. So if you're looking for something that's tart, Sure, using lacto in the secondary is a terrific idea, but for for us, we have a higher threshold for the beer that we're trying to make. But I don't know, Nick. Nick what's your experience been in this area with PDO? I've actually never really I, I've used it quite a bit, and I've never experienced any really strong off flavors. And I know there's there's a lot of kind of dogma around its use, where people say you you have to use it with Brett, otherwise you're going to get a a total butter bomb. And you know, I've actually made beers where I just took a, a base that I fermented with something like you know, 001, and then tossed in lacto and pedio and then some peaches later on, and the beer turned out great. It was very sour, no off flavors or anything. So, you know, I'm not quite sure what I do if I just have a magic touch or something, but, yeah, <laughs> I, I never get a butter bomb or anything like that from it. I think um, it's very strain-dependent, and I think there's even some... I mean, maybe you can speak to this. So, I, you know, in yeast, you may have the same genetic background. You know, you got Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but that's not the... It's not like that's just one thing. It's obviously made all right. these different strains of yeast. So yep. if you have Pediococcus damnosus, you know, is that is one Pediococcus damnosus different from the next where one could get ropey and produce butter and the other could just be totally clean? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are different strains of almost every organism out there that, you know, you're, you're going to have some variation where, you know, either genetically they either do or do not produce some kind of enzyme that's going to have some effect downstream. And that's why, you know, I hear people actually talk about Brett where they say, oh, you know, Brett B is just all funky. And it's like, oh, my God, no, it's uh, there's so much interspecies variation in Brett. It's just it's huge. And I'm, I'm sure bacteria is similar, maybe not the same variation. Yeah, and I think I think that's a lot of what's going on. A lot of people have experience or hear, you know, some of the best brewers in the United States talk about their PDO strains, Russian River, your New Belgium, and maybe theirs do get sick. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that your strain of PDO is going to get sick or it's going to produce a lot of diacetyl. So I always try to recommend, you know, use your senses as a brewer, you know, look, taste, smell, touch your beer, especially in this case, touch your beer because – that's going to give you an indication of how ropey it is. You can put some of your beer on your hands and spread your fingers apart. You know, if it's like a snotty thing that's not breaking apart, hey, you got a ropey beer. But use your best intuition more than what you've heard or read. You can do that as a starting point, but be ready to adjust. John, do you have a, a, a an experience with PDO? Or? Yeah, actually, um, it wasn't on purpose. I was trying to harvest some dregs from uh, one of my own bottles which was supposed to just be uh, Bretois back in my, I guess, sour, funky brewing infancy. And I had this starter going, and I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at this little croissant on it. I'm like, that doesn't look right, man. So I, <laughs> I pick it up, and I kind of move it around, and I notice that this thing is like snot. And I got pretty excited about it. But, you know, <laughs> I was still too scared to try it. Now I'd probably try it, but I remember just watching pouring that thing down the drain and just oh, watching man. how it just never fell apart. It just... It was pretty crazy. It's crazy. We should have gotten, uh, should have called Tim Clifford from yeah, Sante Darius. Yeah, should have sent him up a bunch. Huh? He's dying for you know a sick ropey beer. I do remember funny. both you and uh, both you and uh, Tim had that reaction when you brought that up. Like, ooh, I want to have it. I want to taste it. I want to uh, stick it up my rear end. I want to <laughs> see what it's like. That that was from the outtake, Scott. Oh, that, was, <laughs> that, that didn't was make it to show. air. Oh, yeah, forgive me. You did taste it, didn't you? Didn't you taste it? Didn't that happen to one of your starters? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we still have that beard going. And it's gone through a couple of different sick phases, actually. So my hope and actually what it's spared out in the final product, I'm always hoping that it's going to become more complex and even better, cleaner beer after its sick phase. And I've heard that from other people. But again, like I was just saying, you have to kind of prove it to yourself in your own beer, in your own brewery. And that's how it's been so far. So I'm pretty excited to see where that strain goes. But that's definitely the beer that we are aging the longest. A lot of the first projects we do at the Rare Barrel, we age them probably longer than we have to, but it's just to get like a full picture of observation. It's like, you know, how's this beer at six months, 12 months, you know, 18 months, two years, you know, what what's really going on over the long haul? Just like we were talking about in the first segment with your, uh, your homebrew, John, where, you know, you're checking in along the way. You're not just checking in at the very end, realizing it's good, saying, oh, Nailed it. Mm-hmm. You taste it along the way so you can, you know, taste the good and the bad and try and learn from it. Have you been noticing with your uh, Brett and Lacto-only beers that maybe you don't have to wait those eight, nine, ten months that you were waiting in the beginning? Maybe they're becoming ready at three, four, five months? Three, four, five months, I noticed that the beers taste really good. I mean, we've had beers that taste good at three or four weeks. But the thing is, a lot of times, three, four months in, there's so much yeast and suspension that I'm taking a visual cue from that. I'm I'm saying, Hey, this tastes good. The acidity is good. The final gravity is around where this beer should be now that we have experience with those things. But what the yeast is telling me by staying in suspension is that it's still doing things. So I'm not trying to shut them down prematurely. So I, I take a visual cue from that. So that's why we typically don't package a beer that's under six months old, but we certainly package beers at six months that, taste completely clean and they've been some of our best beers so that that four to six month range can certainly be a sweet spot especially if you have an advanced brett and lacto culture going if you're a home brewer i mean a lot of my concerns is i'm going to bottle this beer and then a few hundred people will have it and then two months from now it's going to be terrible but if you're a home brewer you know it's just your beer so there, there's a little less stress. If you think it's it smells and tastes good at three or four months, package it up. No reason not to. Jay, I got to get a sample of some of your cultures. Anytime. Just come by. <laughs> I want to do uh, a couple more questions. I want to get to the chat room questions. I want to get to the phones. Uh, but first, let's go to this uh, old email from January 22nd as it pertains to uh, house flavor, Jay, because you mentioned that. So I want to address yeah. this. Uh, this is from Chris Smith from beautiful but dry Lake Tahoe. He said uh, he wants to... Uh, build a house saison blend, saison uh, and Britannomyces yeast. They call uh, them cabins up there, Scott. <laughs> he wants to develop a cabin blend, and he said, "I'm wondering <laughs> what would be the best method to develop it. Can this be accomplished through sh- simply repitching the yeast from each saison batch into the next? Should I build up a new starter from the previous beer and add it to the next? Can I conceivably do this indefinitely for my saison blend, or should I start over after a certain length of time, like a clean ale yeast?" I'm going to say yes to every question. It's it's what you want, you know. It's that's how you develop your house culture. I think you want to do something different. You don't want to copy what someone has done exactly. Um, you know, it could be you know taking other breweries' dregs and mixing them together and to make your you know your house sour beer. Um, you know, if you're using saison, you could do it pretty straight up. You could get you know a nice saison blend from Nick and brew batch over batch over batch and be keeping some yeast back from from each batch and saying, hey, you know what? I like this one the best. This many generations is best. And then maybe your, you know, 
harvesting from that, repitching with, you know, you continue to buy new vials all the time, right. but obviously. <laughs> but uh. Well, and like I said, I think it depends on what you're going for. I mean, if you're really going for consistency, this is where I really push for people to, to learn how to culture organisms at home because it's really not hard. And if you really want consistency, maintain all those strands that are part of your blend separately, grow them up separately, and blend them into the same proportions that you use when you had good experience with it. And that's, I mean, you're really going to dial it in and you're going to get quite a bit of consistency out of it. And that's why, like, you know, pitching dregs, I've made some great beers like that. I had a Berliner that was, it wasn't doing much. And I pitched some beatification dregs in. Mm. It was, it was fantastic. But it's just the consistency. Am I going to be able to repeat that? It, maybe that's not even what you want. If it's your, if it's your house culture, you know, maybe you're getting variation and that's what you want. Your Bruno Saison yeah. and your spring version is different from your summer version is different from your fall. You know, have have some fun with it. You know, yeah, absolutely. If it's your house thing, you know, go with it. And if you want to know more about you know developing house flavors, I'd I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the uh, Tim Clifford from Sante Adarius episode because he's doing great beers. All of this stuff is in house. He certainly has a house flavor to him and his beers. The guy's got cultures <laughs> hanging all over too. It's awesome. You go yeah. to the back, he's just it's just loaded with cultures for sure. Just right. tons of Erlenmeyer flasks. So you know, I'd say you have you have some options there. Colin from Massachusetts. Here's Rochambeau. Yes. How are we doing? Hey, we're doing good. Hey, sum up your question quickly, and then we're going to throw it to break. We're going to do a little tease, and then uh, you'll be first up out of the break, all right? All right. It's uh, a question on WLP 644, Brett Trois. Okay. After the break, we're going to get more in-depth about Brett Trois. We'll be right back on the tart time table. <laughs> I don't know whatever you called it. Hey, my brewing brothers and sisters, this is Jamel Zanishev, and I love a bold, hoppy beer, one that spits resin in your face and makes you cry, Uncle. There are a lot of great hoppy beers out there, but at Heretic, we want to make something as bold, dank, and resiny as possible. We use hops at every chance we get, including multiple dry hop additions. The result is Heretic Evil Cousin. This light golden, 8% Imperial IPA has an easy malt character that helps take the edge off the massive bittering but it takes a back seat to the in-your-face hop character. We make sure this beer finishes dry so the hops can jump out and slam me in the taste buds. If you can't get enough hoppy goodness, Evil Cousin is your cup of tea. Cheers. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerone's No Beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerone's are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious, Cicerone's are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. Everybody was drinking, the ladies were upset, cause the breath was thinking, and it won't be long till we start to fun, cause double's gonna get drunk, buddy, best one's gonna get drunk, buddy, everybody get drunk, buddy. 
time to get plastered. I get the party started with the arrogant bastard. The homie stays stoned, the wifey get bone. I keep her ass pregnant, drive my drunk ass home. Cause she likes to be like I like the brew. Pump the pony keg, refilling my 22 with the L's. Pilsner, lager, or the stout. Hops till the party stops, I make the people shout. Call the cops, call his pops. Somebody carry him home. Royalty at Bev, more my party well known. Got the full sale, wholesale, not to do bell. Sometimes she a main, yellow like Timmy. Your fellas keep the cellar, keep it domestic. My big old flat top, time to get reckless. Wherever I'm at, hey yo, the party's right here. You like Ed Hardy, we like Looking like Snake Bliskin, Detroit Ghetto Blaster, racer number five. Even Yingling keep the party alive. Shine a bot, rockin' lot, stabby, rogue. Lagunitas and what have we? The dude sud savvy, I'm rude plus crabby till I strap one on the good cheer. I fuck you up and be a palm right here. Yeah, get my twist like New Year's. You like TMZ? We like beer. Understand? Yo, man. Hold on. When I was 17, I asked the old man to take a couple quarters and buy me a tall can. Back then, it was all about eight balls. Ain't nice, good brew. Hanging out with my crew. Sometimes we get the night train or the thunder chicken. I thought it would pass. The niggas still sipping. I go hard like when I first wake up. Crack a cold one and pour the shit in my cup. Now here comes the madness. The night like gladness. Call me Dino Vino. See, I'm the baddest. Worried to cast this buzz for you. They should put me with the monkeys down in L.A. Zoo. And you can come see me for a small Watch me get drunk with my family. You can take it to the bridge, I'll take it to the fridge. Make sure it's real quiet so I can hear the fears. When you see me in public, know my bottle is near. Y'all niggas like tight pants, we like beer. back it's the sour hour um be an awesome tease before the break question from i think it was it was mike right from massachusetts yeah mike what's your question uh, it's actually eli <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> i can't believe that everyone's mike today. <laughs> what's up how eli? you guys doing great good hey love what you're doing thank you very much thank you for listening all right question for you on brett Trois. so 
I did a primary ferment on a 1056 start in gravity, 10, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 150 uh, mash temp uh, pale ale, about 35 IBUs, initial bittering, and then the rest of the hops were all at flame out. I pitched a vial of Brett Trois and a vial of Brett Klaskenai, both uh, white labs. As a primary, day two, I pitched some bottle dregs of uh, Crooked Save Surrette. Okay. And by day six, it dropped to 1011, so I dry hopped it and kegged it, and it's now conditioning. Um, so that all went well. Then the following week, I did kind of a Lambic-style American Sour, 83% uh, Belgian Pilsner malt and then some character malt for the rest of it. I pitched two vials of Bretois, and as the primary, no oxygen on any of it, uh, no starter. And it was chugging away. I had a uh, temperature controller on it at 68. After about 10 days or so, I checked the, checked the gravity, and it had only dropped from 1053 four gravity points. So I wanted to know what you guys thought of that. What was the volume of that brew, the second one? Uh, two vials into six gallons. Did you oxygenate the first batch? No, I did not. No starters on any of it, no oxygen on any of it. But you did pitch another Brett, and then um, what was the other thing? Some some dregs or yeah, something? Yeah, dregs from Surratt. And same same volume, so you did two vials in six gallons? Yes. Okay, interesting. That's um, pretty low. Sounds rate. like a gross underpitch to me. It, it, it's a low pitch rate, and you know Brett. Brett can pull through that oh, yeah. um, over time. Uh, your first one seems that, that seems like a great uh, stroke of luck that you fermented that much that quickly. Unless I'm missing something on like the gravity no, it or like a normal stack ferment, chugging away, mm-hmm. and so did the second one. Looked like a normal stack ferment. It just only dropped four points in uh, about two weeks or so. Well, you're doing the right things. You know, you're checking the visuals on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Brett, primary fermentations can be extremely slow. Even when you think you pitch quite a bit, I think the key is to pitch quite a bit, more, way more than you think. Uh, I never, I've never heard of a Britannomyces overpitch. And, yeah, oxygen is your friend if you wanted it to go faster. Is there a reason you didn't oxygenate? I wanted to get a little bit more funk out of it. So what I've heard and read was lower pitch, no oxygen, and you'll it a little more and, and get that funk. You know, I, I have to say that that's kind of a long-standing thing that I've heard as well, and I thought found it to be true. But then after starting the rare barrel, we've done quite a few of those, and a lot of our beers are not funky at all. There's not a lot of Brett aromatics to them at all. So I think uh, I think uh, you know one thing. So a couple of years ago at the Craft Brewers Conference, um, Chad Jacobson and Troy Casey were doing a talk, and Chad mentioned something about uh, you know the interaction of esters and phenolics of a primary Saccharomyces fermentation and then a Brett secondary, and then that's really what's giving everyone the funk that they're kind of used to in these Britannomyces beers. And I've, I've definitely found that to be true over time. So I think the whole stressing the yeast thing is maybe less of a factor than I actually previously thought, but I don't know. What, what and, do you guys think? You know, what happens with each Brett could, can really vary from strain to strain. I mean, pe- people have taken our little Christie blend. There was one guy who pitched one vial 
into 2.5 gallons, which is still a huge underpitch. And he just said, I mean, that, that blend produces a lot of strawberry esters. He said it was crazy. I mean, it was just, it produced so many of those esters. It was just, it was super intense. And I never got it that intense before. So, you know, apparently underpitching with that blend, you know, he saw good results, which was interesting. But uh, I guess that's not something that you can really carry over to every other strain because these strains are, they're different. You know, you're going to have variation from strain to strain. Absolutely. John, what's, what's been your experience with that? I definitely experienced more of the Brett Funk character, you know, the atypical Brett Funk, when I pitch Brett post-sack fermentation. Mm-hmm. And I was always stressed, you know, pitch a healthy amount of yeast. You always want a healthy primary fermentation with lots of yeast to uh, not stress them out because maybe it's not the flavors that you want are coming from stress, but maybe from the healthy fermentation. But like I've always been told also is that, you know, Britannomyces doesn't need like sugars or anything. It can go in and it just kind of breaks down all those uh, esters and right. well, phenols. It, it needs a certain level of carbohydrates to break down and to produce energy, but it uses that energy to produce enzymes, which are then used to produce flavor compounds. The flavor compounds produced aren't necessarily a byproduct of metabolism like in lactic acid bacteria, where lactic acid is actually a byproduct of breaking down sugars. You know, something I just thought of, I think Nick and I actually sound a lot alike over the microphone, so I hope people are confusing who's who so I sound much smarter than I actually am. <laughs> Maybe you should do that thing like uh, every time you speak, this is Jay, and my opinion is, and then Nick will, inter- every time you talk, you got to introduce I'll just yourself. start going like Ricky Henderson, where I'm talking about Ricky being Ricky and going third person all the time. Or maybe you should just, everyone is just, uh, this is Mike, and my opinion is, uh, <laughs> this is Mike. Yeah, so uh, Roshan Brew, what I would say is, you know, <laughs> This is a Brett beer. I'd say you know don't don't stress too much about it. I, to me, what a lot, a lot of what Brett does is sometimes no matter what you do with it, it ends up in the same spot. If you're going for a funky beer, then you know honestly, if you're not if you don't have fermentation right now, throw some Saccharomyces might be the way to go. I mean, you've got the Brett in there; it's grown some amount. Saccharomyces will come in. Do the majority of the fermentation, create those esters. The Brett's going to interact with it. It'd be totally an un- unconventional fermentation, you know, no oxygen and Brett for a couple of days or weeks, then Saccharomyces, and then letting Brett finish it up. Could be interesting. It, but, yeah, you should uh, – that, that'd be my suggestion. And then, uh, yeah, just tell us how it goes. Pitch a healthy, active starter of Saccharomyces. Just make sure yeah, – The pail was supposed to be clean. It was kind of a test to see how to – Brett would react, and that wound up at that ten eleven. And I don't know if it's because of the Clothini and the threat dregs. It's just the other one caught me off guard, where it only dropped four gravity points. Where it looked like it was the airlock was bubbling away straight for two weeks, and I had it at eighty degrees with a heat jacket. It's hard to know. You know, there's so many little things that can happen over time. But from what you told us, and you gave us a lot of great detail. I'd guess it'd be the other yeast strains who reacted better to no oxygen in that environment, but he was from Massachusetts, right? Just make sure your Brett are not deflated, you know, when you play the game. That's a football <laughs> joke for everybody. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Roche. No, no response from Bevo. Eh. She's not wearing her headphones. I think she, you know what? She's been reading a lot of audiobooks lately, and uh, she's been very emotional. She's very tired. Crying takes it out of you. We had a long talk about books versus movies before the show. Exactly, and so I think she may just be a little bit uh, drained from all that, right? Well, wait, she just put her headphones back on, so let's stop talking about her and go to the next question. You're all staring at me. <laughs> Can you blame us? 
All right, let's do <laughs> let's do uh, a couple of the, the questions from the, the chat. Yeah, please. Uh, this one is from Sean. I'm going to read it just as Bebo wrote it here for Nick. Uh, he wonders about your findings on Brett Trois and it likely not being Brett, but a sack. Uh, also recommended percentages in yeast blends, like ratio of sack to Brett. So that's uh, that's the Tua question. I thought the I was last waiting one for was that one. <laughs> I was waiting for it. Uh, so you know, Chris White addressed that today, and what I would have said today is exactly what he actually said. Basically, just that. Uh, first of all, if you're using it right now and you're using it with good results, keep using it. Uh, you know. It, the only thing that's going to change is what we call it. I, I could call an apple an orange. It's still going to taste and, and smell and, and look like an apple. Uh, and then regarding, you know, a lot of people are concerned, why isn't White Labs coming out with a statement? Why aren't they, why aren't they saying something about this? Uh, I think Chris White addressed that really well today, just saying, you know, listen, we're the, the way that yeast is identified right now, I think it, it is a likelihood that it is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. However, we only look at very tiny pieces of DNA. And right now, White Labs is in the throes of, you know, their whole genome sequencing project where they're looking at the entire genome of 96 strains, which can completely change how we actually look at and identify these strains. So I would just say have patience with White Labs. They're going to come out with that study, and I think we're going to learn a lot from it. And that's, you know, that's just how good research is conducted. You don't want to put out little pieces of data here and there. Uh, because basically when you're doing this research, a picture forms, and that is always changing. It's very dynamic, and you want to make sure that you're drawing some meaningful final conclusions before you actually come out with something. So I want to ask a follow-up to that, cause I, but I like what you said about, you know, you don't want to report research along the way. I think a lot of what we try to do on this show is, you know, interview people who are experts in some area that touches sour beer, but I'm trying to th- sprinkle in what's happening at the rare barrel here and there. But I try to be careful not to make blanket statements like, hey, this is the way things are in sour beer, because honestly, it's still inconclusive. Um, so I like what, where you're coming from with that. My question for you is, you know, I, I don't understand this whole, um, you know, genetic identification thing with yeast too, as, as well as you do. So, you know, there, there are ways to send a yeast strain out and hear back from a lab saying, hey, this is Saccharomyces or Britannomyces. What's the difference between that process where there has been some questions about this strain being Saccharomyces and what White Labs is going through is one just like an incomplete picture, a snapshot? Basically what they do to identify these organisms is that they look at a very small piece of DNA that will tend to vary more from species to species, whereas what White Labs is doing is they're literally looking at all the DNA. So essentially what you could think of it as is you're essentially looking through a pinhole with what we're doing right now and whole genome sequencing is like you just have a full view of everything and they're literally looking at the entire genetic code of every organism so you're comparing a lot more genetic material so it's just it's more robust it's it's a more meaningful comparison okay it's just a definitive answer to the question instead of uh you know well and, and even then even from a from a scientific standpoint when you look at an organism and you say these are the genetics the genetics are only still half the picture because then you have actually a proteomic analysis where you look at okay how are the genes actually uh expressed in an organism because a lot of organisms we have a lot of genes that we don't use in our genome mm-hmm. uh looking at and i i'm curious and i maybe they'll do that next i hope they do uh that they pair a proteomic analysis which is looking at all the proteins the cell creates uh, with the genetic analysis that they've done, because that would be a really powerful tool to compare these organisms. I have a lot of genes that I don't use either. They don't fit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> another question, Scott? Yeah. So this is uh, another one from the chat room from Dan ABA or, or Dan Abba. I'm not real sure. But he, he wants advice for people who don't like sour beer. He says, are they lost causes? 
Now, Jay, before you give your take on this. Ye- oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say that I don't think there is a such thing as a lost cause. I have yet to meet one. Every time I think I've met one, they eventually turn around. It's just a matter of finding the right beer and finding the way to introduce them to it and sort of prepare them for what they're about to drink. Like Alex, your uh, partner, has talked about the three-sip rule. Mm -hmm. You tell me if you disagree. Have you met a lost cause yet? I don't think anyone's a lost cause. To be honest, this question is like the number one reason I want to do this show and interview people who care about sour beer because if someone out there is going to someone's brewery or there's some home brewer out there who listens to this show and you know their sour beer gets one percent better from listening then that's a one percent greater chance that someone who has their first sip of sour beer is is going to actually like it because it is way out there i mean let's not get ourselves there's a reason this is a weird thing in a niche market it's because most people aren't ready to have something like this especially something that's labeled as beer that doesn't taste anything like beer to most people. Something that's labeled sour, which a lot of people, you know, connote with spoiled product. So there, there's a big uphill climb, but the flavor is the king. And some people are just repelled by all acidic things. You know, maybe they don't like salad dressing or they don't even like tart fruits. They just don't like sour things. But for other people who, you know, do like sour candies or orange juice or, you know, anything that has some acidity to it. There's a lot of people who like wine who refuse to drink beer, but once they have sour beer, they're like, oh, they say two things. Oh, this doesn't taste like beer, and I like this. Yeah, it's so wine-like. I, I never say there's a lost cause. There's a beer for everyone out there, and that doesn't ne- necessarily have to be sour beer, but, you know, we're working on it. A couple other pieces of advice, too. Um, do it in a group setting, preferably with people that already like sour beer, so they can uh, lend their two cents to the preparation and how to explain what to expect and what they're drinking. And Rodenbach Grand Cru. That seems to be a really good transition beer. I've had more success converting people to sour beer using that as the starting point than any other beer off the top of my head. Even the Rare Barrel, huh? The Rare Barrel is, I don't uh, know if I... Did I've, you just get weird in here? <laughs> I don't know if I've tried converting people with rare barrel beer yet. I assume, maybe totally erroneously, that it's phenomenal beer for those who are already, they've transitioned off Rodenbach Grand Cru, and they can now move on to something like the rare barrel. I just think it's a little more intense generally. I don't know. What what would you say is your sweet, sour beer mix? Because that's what Rodenbach has. It has sweetness. I don't know. To me, and I am the most biased person to comment on this, but you know the beer that's in your guys' glasses is called Shadows of Their Eyes. Uh, it's something we just debuted last week in the taste room. It's the same loose style as Rodenbach, and to me, it's I would never make the comparison. Rodenbach is like this; it's on the Mount Rushmore of sour beers. Basically, it's like you know, there's so much of it out there. It's everyone's, a lot of people's uh, first experience in sour beer. This, to me, it's a little less sweet. It's more relatable to simpler flavors like cherry, chocolate, coffee. And I I think this could change people's minds. Now, that's not the game we're in. We're not trying to be as big as Rodenbach, and we're not making beer to convert the person who doesn't like sour beer. But I just think there are there's virtues in all, all different types of sour beers. I mean, we make dry hop sour beers, fruited sour beers, spice sour beers, sour beers made in different oak barrels. You know, we make something for everyone and you know i refuse to believe there's someone out there who will never ever like sour beer unless they have some weird condition even my wife likes sour beers sometimes (laughs) there you go i don't know what do you guys think if you 
what happens when someone doesn't like a sour beer or the beers that you know you guys are really into? I think the you know to each their own. If they don't like it, they don't like it. But you know, don't don't say something stupid like it sucks because well, that's, yeah. But how do you how do you force them to like it yeah, though? Right. See, I, I hold just, them down. I just what's, your, what's your technique? <laughs> a funnel. I get, I get the funnel out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, like I said, to each their own. I think you know a lot of people eventually come around and and. I think when you find beers that are really good for for breaking people into sour beers, because some are more intense, I think a lot of rare barrel beers are actually really good for that because they're really balanced and there's actually like a, a wide variation uh, in all your beers where you add you know spices or fruit stuff like that that people you know they already know those flavors they're familiar with them. What do you think, so John? When you're when you're giving out you know this blackberry, the nectarine, the peach beer, are, you know they're friends of yours who are like sour beer. You know what what are you trying to give me? And you have a, a hard time convincing them. To be honest. Most of the people that I give the sour beers kind of already have an idea of it mm-hmm. because as a home brewer, there's only a finite amount of it. Yeah. You know? yeah, and you're in that world. Those are the people exactly, you're around. Exactly, you know, so most of the time they enjoy it, I would say. But uh, I've had a lot of converts, especially within my company. <laughs> there's been a lot of people that have never tried them before. Oh, yeah, you're in construction. I can't, I can't imagine a more refreshing beer than like a Berlin or a Weiss after just mm-hmm. a, like just grinding stone all day. It's you like, have yeah, no idea. Sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Don't make the mistake, by the way, of projecting your palate onto everybody else's because as sour beer lovers, we might have consecration from Resin River and be like, our mind is blown because it's fantastic, but that is going to make any newbie wretch. It's just way, <laughs> way too powerful and, and sour and too everything. Could be. Or, you know, people could embrace it because it's so well done. They might. They might. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking, I mean, this guy's writing it about lost causes, which means he might be surrounded by people who are, who are resisting. More beer for us. Yeah. Uh, well... <laughs> Touché. At least, at least he's reaching out. He's trying, doing God's work. Amen. Yeah. Um, you know, before we get to more, some more questions, I wanted to hit on a couple of things that I definitely wanted to get uh, Nick's thoughts on, and and one just being, you know, I think one thing you can kind of convey or just just kind of talk briefly on is the isolation and culturing of specifically bread and bacteria. If there are people out there, home brewers or even pro brewers. What advice would you give them if they're trying to do start to collect their own strains? I know a lot of this advice you probably could give is a lot of visual stuff, but you know, right. how, how do you get started? Well, what really, what I mean, resources would you point them to? The first thing I'd say is uh, if you're in, if you want to get into culture and definitely read yeast from Jamil and Chris, it's a great book and it's not just a good primer. It's it's got a lot of very specific information that's like you know if you want to start culturing yeast. These are a lot of the tools that you'll need. Can you buy that through the Brewing Network store? I believe so. Brewingnetwork.com slash store. And there's a bootleg biology, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Bootleg bi- biology will, I, I believe they sell kits to uh, culture yeah. your own yeast, correct? And they give you instructions on how to do so as well. Yep. And that's like, that's like a local yeast capture program that he's trying yeah. to do. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it's cool. It's really cool stuff. But, uh, you know, with respect to the media that I use, when I'm actually plating things out, I almost always use lab media. It's just I, I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm buying. It's predictable. Uh, and for, for Brett, I use uh, just YPD, yeast peptone dextrose. You can also use what Chad used throughout most of his thesis, which is the uh, MYPG, mm-hmm. which is the malt, yeast, peptone, glucose. You know, either of those are going to work well. Uh, it's, it's kind of a myth. A lot of people think that you need maltose in the media mm-hmm. or like all of a sudden they'll, they'll lose the ability to ferment maltose, which is, you know, it isn't true. So lab media works really well for Brett on, on solid media anyway and for small cultures. I guess if you're trying to just do starters and things like that, uh, malt works great. And I always run those semi-aerobic on a stir plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what Chad Copes and other people have, have reported gives the best growth. 
Um, bacteria is a little trickier. I know a lot of people have trouble growing it. That's why I, I too had that same issue. I know people, you know, I tried like filtered tomato juice and all these other yeah. recipes that people are trying. I just didn't have a lot of luck. So I actually use uh, MRS media now. It's mm-hmm. demand Ragoza Sharp. Uh, it's just standard lab media for culturing, you know, lacto, PDO, just really any LAB will grow on it. And uh, I do that anaerobically and it, it's, it's worked really well for me. How do you go about making it an anaerobic environment? Yeah. So for me, I actually, uh, I do the cheap way. I take a, a vacuum seal bag and I, I toss in an anaero pack, which basically um, when you tear this thing open, you got 30 seconds to toss it in like a jar. They actually make anaero jars too, but I want to be able to fit it in my incubator, uh, which I can't fit a giant jar in. So I actually take a vacuum bag. I'll plate things out. I'll stick them in, tear this anaero pack open, vacuum seal it up. And uh, it actually does a really good job of producing a, an anaerobic environment and maintaining it. If you don't toss it in the bag in time, does it suck all the oxygen out of the room and then you die of suffocation? That happens. I'm, st- I'm still here. <laughs> that happens, right? <laughs> that happens. Okay. I just want safety first. Everyone is listening. So I just want yeah, but to... a, a lot of people actually grow on MRS uh, aerobically too. And I, I think mm-hmm. for, for a lot of strains it works. Uh, I just find it best. I've, I've had the most consistent results growing it anaerobically. And then just one one more technique from what, what you do at the East Bay. And I, I encourage everyone listening to go to eastbay.com or check them out on Facebook, facebook.com slash the East Bay and order their strains. You can get them direct uh, wherever you're listening from. Let's let's say you're going to make a brand new uh, sour beer culture, a mixed culture for like mixed primary fermentation or mixed secondary. How do you balance how much bread is in there with how much lacto and how much PD are you counting? And how does that work with white labs? You know, for me, I, I, I try my best to work out the ratios and for me, my R and D batches, I can only do so much, but for the Brett, it really just, it doesn't take a lot of Brett to get a lot of character, especially when you have something like a Saccharomyces yeast that's already there. That's producing some flavor compounds that they're going to end up breaking down and producing their own flavor compounds. You know, people talk about pitching, you know, huge amounts of Brett into secondary, and it's, it's just not necessary. And, you know, Brettanomyces isn't going to be the main primary fermenter in a blend like that, uh, but it's going to add a lot down the line, and it really doesn't take much. Gotcha. Any more questions, Scott? Yeah, let's do one. Actually, real quick, I realized yeah. we didn't answer that. Uh, I guess I just did, but we didn't answer the second half of that one guy's question where he's saying blending sack and Brett. Right. Proportions. It doesn't take much Brett to get character. There you go. Uh, let's do one last question, but uh, before we do, I, I, as it pertains to buying books, uh, even if yeah. something is not in the Brewing Network store, a great way to support the Brewing Network, uh, no matter what you're buying, books or otherwise, is by shopping th- on Amazon. You go to the Brewing Network homepage, you click through the Amazon link right there in the center of the homepage, and then do all your shopping as normal, and Amazon gives us a little cut of it, keeps shows like this and other BN shows on the air for your enjoyment. Awesome. And that this last question and all of tonight's questions were brought to you by SourBeerBlog.com and the awesome author, Dr. Lambic. Go read his exploits at SourBeerBlog.com. This last question is from Mike. Actually, Mike, Actually, this Mike. time. Oh, not, not this Mike? <laughs> not you, Mike. <laughs> oh, no, this Mike's okay. Michael Sterry. He says, uh, hello, Sour Hour. I've been sitting on my first Brett beer for over a year now. I think it's ready to go. Very excited to drink it. But after reading the packaging chapter of American Sour Beers... Uh, I only found formulas on how to carbonate in the bottle with young beer. Since I don't have any young beer around, how do you recommend bottling? A uh, little background, it's a bread IPA, about 40 IBUs. It's sitting at about a buck two right now. Uh, what bottle should I use? Is there anything I can read? Yeah, bottle conditioning. This I think I might have mentioned this before, but something that kept me up at night before we opened the rare barrel. And thanks for the question, John. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
my concern was just getting an over-carbonation in the bottle, basically. So I think one great place to start is just get the thickest glass bottles. Let's say you're, you're going to – let's say all my advice is wrong right now. At least you got the most protection possible. Safety first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, John brought us some sours tonight. I see he's got pretty much all the strongest bottles. He's got, the I think, the, the Crooked Stave bottles and the Orval bottle. Yeah, those are my you know, favorites. You're getting uh, definitely— you can't go wrong with those. Yeah, that so that that gets some insurance right there. Year old Brett beer sounds like it. What was it? Oh, oh, two, one, like one so, Plato. Yeah, that's so, pretty low, <laughs> really low, and that's great for us. We see a lot of differences in different recipes with uh, finishing gravities with our Brett. Other brewers you talk to, pro brewers, you know, they won't package unless it's zero. So, you know, with that little amount of sugar that you have left, it's it's been going for a year. It's just Brett, and I wouldn't be too worried about any bottle bombs. So. You can go a few different ways, you know. You can so yeah, you can do the young beer if you want to brew a new batch, or you can just do kind of the what I would say is the typical way, which is adding fresh sugar and fresh yeast. The problem with that is you can go so many different ways with the yeast, the yeast selection. You can use the same yeast that you use, the same bread, um, longer aging time. We did quite a bit of uh, bottle conditioning experiments at the Rare Barrel, and we just went by taste. And what came out the other end for us was we use a dry white wine yeast for all of our bottle conditioning. And that just kind of stayed true to the barrel-aged beer flavor, but also enhanced it a little bit. And it's been working out great for us. It's for uh, It re-ferments in the bottle well at lower pH, lower temperature, in case it's wintertime. We're big fans of that at the Rare Barrel. You can also force carb. You know, there are a lot of sour brewers out there who are doing force carbonated beers. So a lot of different ways to go. Kind of depends what you want to do. If you want to stay exactly true to the beer and... Drink it right away, force carbonate it, get it in the bottle, boom, you're done. If you want maybe a little more in, insulation against some oxygen exposure over time, bottle condition that, do it with a strain that's going to be neutral. I'd suggest, you know, you can use 001, you can use the cask conditioning uh, strain, I think it's called CBC, or you can use ours, which is uh, the platinum strain from Moravin, uh, the Australian yeast supplier, or you can try and brew a new beer and do the the Spice or Croizen where you you know you're adding the young beer a certain amount of sugar a certain amount of yeast that's the most advanced technique maybe in all of sour beer making i'd suggest you don't do that but you know go for it if that's what you want but maybe start at the simpler end force carb it and then for your next beer do a bottle conditioning and then maybe for the one after that do your uh your young beer in there i don't know what do you guys think Force carving is actually the kind of, it's kind of the holding pattern that I've always been in with sour beers because I, I was worried about that same thing about bottle bombs when I first started making sours. I said, oh, I'll just keg it and, and, you know, dial in the carbonation where I want it. And then if I want to, I'll bottle it from there. That is really the lowest threshold and it's the easiest. I think it's the most predictable because you know how carbonated it is. And when you bottle it, you know, from a keg to keep it for a long term, it's probably going to stay that carbonated and nothing's really, there's, it's going to be more static. However, I don't know if you're going to get the same development. Uh, of flavors if you leave you know organisms in there you let it keg for a couple of weeks when it's cold you might crash most of the things out so you know actually i uh i force carb all my sour beers and one of the things i do to kind of help keep development going in the bottle is that i'll carbonate it in the keg and i'll bottle it right away while there still is some yeast and bacteria in suspension so if i were to you know take a pour off of the tap it's still a cloudy beer Nice. I think you're definitely getting some extra flavor development from that as well. 
But yeah, I mean, yeah, start with the force car. I think, you know, I, it's hard to read into your question any more than you said. So if, you ju- if you're just about getting it in the bottles or keg, yeah, just force carb it. I think that's the easiest way to go. All right. That's going to do it for tonight's episode of the sour. What, what were we at tonight, Scott? Sour hour and a half, sour hour and 45 minutes. Well, first off, it's the uh, tart, tart timeout. Tart. Tart timeout. And, uh, tart that- table no, with not. Moscow. I'm going to veto that name. That well, terrible. But Bevo, that show can run as long as we want it to. The sour hour has to be a, an hour. Bevo's Bevy of Beer has been brought yeah. to you by <laughs> thesourbeerblog.com. Yeah, we're runtime tonight. Do you have an approximate? Yeah, somewhere around it's a like buck forty. One forty. Ooh, one forty-eight. I think actually. You guys pay overtime here. What right? about the sour double hour? Yeah. Sour double hour. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's been it. Uh, thanks to our guests, Nick from the East Bay, John the Home Brewer. Until next time, it's been the sour hour. <laughs> <laughs>